Brothers and sisters, if you would, please find uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 in your copy of God's Word. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, and we will be uh, reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 this morning. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, and we'll be skipping over to uh, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Uh, shortly thereafter. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring about what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." And now if you'd flip over a page or two to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Peter writes, and this is kind of the theme of the book, Beloved, do not be surprised, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Please be seated. First Peter is a handbook for how a believer ought to live in a hostile world. For those of you who are interested in that topic and have, uh, have participated in blogs and listened to sermons and read books about that topic, I I commend this little book to you. Peter wrote this epistle to the churches in Asia Minor, what we would now call Turkey, who had already experienced some persecution at the hands of their families and neighbors. But Peter, correctly as it turned out, anticipated that they would experience more and more intense persecution in the near future, the fiery trial he mentions in verse 12 of chapter 4. So Peter wrote this epistle to strengthen, encourage, and direct these beloved congregations 
And he wrote it to strengthen, direct, and encourage us as we encounter trials of various kinds, particularly as we labor in a world that is increasingly hostile to followers of Jesus Christ. It is for this reason that 1 Peter has been on my mind in the last two years. Perhaps you remember 2020? Do you remember the adventures we had during that year and in the next? Were you not reminded in those days that we live in a world that is hostile to Christ and to his, his followers? I wonder how many books like, like this one. This book was given to me by my mother, I, I believe, two Christmases ago. It's, it's entitled, We Will Not Be Silence, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. And I wonder how many sermons have been preached on that topic in the last couple of years, and how many blogs have, have been on that topic. Um, so the events in the spirit of those times were much on my mind when I last stood in the pulpit. Uh, my text was 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And my goal was to build you up in the face of a hostile world. But I want to share one response I received from one of you, and, and Justin and I, we do get responses when we, when we preach up here. Ryan's not so much, but um, I did get a note from one of you, and I couldn't find the note, so it went something like this. Thank you, Dave. I think you helped all of us, but I look forward to hearing more about the joy. I remember thinking, you want to hear more about the joy? Well, maybe you should look in other passages of the Scripture. That's really not what 1 Peter is about. As I said before, 1 Peter is really a handbook on how to live in a hostile world in which Christians suffer trials of all kinds. But those of you who know and love 1 Peter and have read with some discernment know that, probably know that that's not true. Peter may have not have had a lot to say about joy. In fact, he uses a derivation of that word only three times in the, in the entire letter. But if you read the book carefully, as I was forced to do after I received that note, but if you read the book carefully, you realize that joy is foundational to this book. In fact, joy is at the center of our main passage today. Indeed, joy is foundational to dealing with trials of various kinds, not just those we encounter at the hands of a hostile world. Now, there is a lot going on in these nine verses. It is full of clauses and phrases, full of meaning and implication. I'm reminded of the writing of the Apostle Paul. But uh, to do justice to this passage, we would probably need at least three sermons. And I have just this one. So what I propose this morning is this taking the phrase that is in the center of this section, in this you rejoice, as the title, I will list eight reasons Peter gives us for rejoicing. Now, when you read the passage, you may find more reasons or fewer, but uh, this is what I have, uh, this is what I see and what I have prepared. So this sermon, dear brother, is about joy, but I'm afraid we first have to begin with suffering. So here's the first reason that we have to rejoice. We can rejoice in the trials we have themselves. 
We can rejoice in trials because, well, for two reasons. First of all, they identify us with Christ and his suffering. Note what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 13. It says, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Peter is echoing what the Lord tells us in Matthew 10. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. It's Matthew 10, verses 24 and 25. Indeed, the apostles took this to heart. You remember in Acts 5, when they were hauled before the council, told not to preach in Christ's name anymore, and were subsequently beaten by the council? Do you remember that passage of Scripture? We are told that they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, I don't know about you, but I would find it difficult to take joy in the fact that I had just been publicly beaten. But it's useful to remember who wrote this book. It is, of course, Peter, whose birth name was Simon. He is the one who boasted that he would never deny Christ, yet denied him three times. Can you see now the reason for the joy Peter felt despite the beating? He who had failed Christ because he did not want to be identified with him and feared the consequences had just been beaten for preaching in Christ's name. I think we can understand that kind of joy. So we can rejoice in our trials, well, in certain types of trials, because they identify us with Christ. And to be sure, this kind of joy only comes to us when we face persecution, but there is a reason to rejoice in other kinds of trials as well. We can rejoice in the trials for what they produce. Take note once again of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. We read, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Do you see that little phrase, if necessary? We experience trials, brothers and sisters, only when they are necessary. Why might trials be necessary? Trials might be necessary for three reasons. They might be necessary for us. They might be necessary for God's people. And they might be necessary for the world. John Calvin puts it this way. Peter's purpose was to show that God does not thus try his people without reason. For if God afflicted us without cause, it would be grievous to bear. Hence, Peter has taken an argument for consolation from the design of God, not because its purposes always appear to us, but because we ought to be fully persuaded that it ought to be so, because it is God's will. Now, when we experience trials, it is impossible for us to fully understand why we experience them, but Peter gives us some clues in this passage. Peter tells us that the trials test the genuineness of our faith. God uses trials in our lives for our own good. Sometimes he disciplines, sometimes he teaches us through them, sometimes he strengthens us. Indeed, the image that Peter uses is one of testing, proving, refining. The image is one of a precious metal being purified, refined, and made even more precious. More specifically, it is our faith that is precious and being refined. It is your refined faith that will bring 
God and Christ both praise and glory in the future. But that is not all. There are other reasons why our trials might be necessary. Here's what I mean. Our trials, brothers and sisters, are not experienced in isolation. We experience our trials in the presence of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we experience our trials in the presence of the world. Peter says that the results of our testing will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But God gets the glory in the church even now when we bear up under trials, keep, our, keep the faith, and grow up in Him. God gets praise and glory even now when we keep the faith in and through our trials, and that praise and glory takes place here and now in the church. Our trials are not just for our own good. Those around us also get the benefit. Consider Joseph. Consider the trials that he endured. Most certainly, the years of suffering that he endured refined and purified his faith and prepared him for the work that God had for him to do. But he also endured for the sake of his brothers and their families. Did he not? Did he not endure those for their sake as well? And did not Joseph's suffering have an important place in redemptive history? Now, I realize that you and I are no Joseph or Moses or David. But God is working in and through you as well. Not just for your benefit, but also for the benefit of those around you. And even your sufferings have a place in redemptive history. So trials may be necessary for you, but they are also necessary for the church. Our trials may be necessary in another sense. Let's expand on that idea a little bit. Our trials may be necessary for the planet. Weren't the sufferings of Christ necessary for the salvation of the world? In Revelation 5, the question was asked, Who is worthy to open the scroll and its seals? And the apostles started to weep because there was no one found worthy. But he was told, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and, seven, and the seven seals. So the apostle looks around looking for the lion. And what does he see? He sees instead a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It is through his sufferings that Christ, who is both the lion and the lamb, conquered. And didn't the Apostle Paul say, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church? Colossians 1.24 Paul's filling up the sufferings of Christ meant that his labors and the persecution he suffered on the account of Christ, were necessary for the salvation of souls and the establishment of Christ's church. So our trials may also be necessary in that sense. Some of you might say, but my trials have nothing to do with the gospel. They have nothing to do with the gospel witness. My trials have to do with my age, my illness, my family, or my foolishness, maybe my situation. But even these trials are necessary in the eyes of God. It is possible that your trials are simply the result of God delaying the Lord's return. Peter tells us in his second epistle, The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
We live in a fallen world, the effects of which are sin and death and suffering. Yet we also live in a world where the Lord is at work building his church. He has delayed his coming so that his church can be saved. His patience requires our patience. One of the reasons we must endure the decay of our earthly bodies and the various other effects of life in a fallen world is that God is building his church. He is delaying his coming because he has those whom he is saving. This is one reason that our trials are necessary. We must endure the, the afflictions of living in a fallen world so that we, Christ's church, can bear witness in a fallen world. So we can rejoice in trials because they can identify us with the Lord and because they are necessary. But this is just a kind of joy, is it not? This is the kind of joy that a cross-country runner experiences or maybe a weightlifter at the gym or a mother in the midst of childbirth. There is a kind, that is a kind of joy, is it not? James puts it this way, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This, is a, this kind of joy is an accounting term. James is saying, put this in the ledger on the joy side because they produce good things. But Peter is not content with that kind of joy. He gives us, as John Newton wrote in the old song, solid joys and lasting treasures. In fact, Peter starts off his epistle, his handbook for living for Christ in a world where various trials may be necessary with a burst of praise listing a number of those solid joys. Let's look back at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 again. We read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So what are these solid joys and lasting treasures that we have? Well, the second reason for joy that we have this morning is that we can rejoice in the new birth. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward Christ, towards us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The apostle goes on with those very familiar words 
words that most of you have memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We could go on reading through that precious passage of Scripture, but the point is this. Our chief and first cause of joy is what God has done for us in Christ, and the first thing that he has done for us is he has given us spiritual life. Brothers and sisters, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, unaware that we were sinners, unaware that we were under God's wrath, without faith, incapable of repentance, unaware of who Christ was and what he had done for us. This is what was true of us, but because of God's great mercy to us, he has breathed spiritual life into us, made us aware of our sin and our need for a Savior. He has given us hearts of flesh and not of stone. He has given us repentance, opened our eyes to Christ, and given us faith in him. This is the life that you have been given, and it is just the beginning. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into judgment. Indeed, he has crossed over from death into life. John five twenty four. What is the first thing that should come to mind when we face trials of various kinds? It is this. Yes, but I have life. I have a spiritual life, eternal life, a life that will never end in Jesus Christ, my Lord. I will not die, but live, live with him in the abundance of life. And you have this life now, and even some of your griefs are the result of that life. You are and have been grieved because of the hostility of the world to believers, but you have also been grieved by sins both those of your own and those of the world around you. You have experienced this grief because of the life that you have been given. Even this is something to rejoice in. Our third reason for joy. We rejoice in hope. Know what Peter says is the result of the new life we have been given. He reminds us that we have been born again to a living hope. Brothers and sisters, what is, what is hope? Well, Wayne Grudem tells us that this hope is that eager expectation of the life to come. Now, to be sure, this world is full of hope, even the hope of heaven, but this hope has, is little more than wishful thinking. It has no basis in fact or understanding of the gospel. Your hope, believer, on the other hand, is sure. Your hope is sure because, as Peter tells us, our living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Brothers and sisters, the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead is evidence for your hope. We can point to it and say, Jesus rose from the dead, and I have been promised the same. But his resurrection also secures our hope. He lives, and he has promised that, we, that he will raise us up in the last days as well. Jesus died and rose again so that we might have the same life. His resurrection has secured your eternal life, He lives, he has given you spiritual life, and he will give you a resurrected, perfect, spiritual body that will never fail. Rejoice in that hope. Think for a moment about Peter's original audience. Their faith in Christ had cost many of them. Belief in Jesus 
And obedience to him meant that they were put out of their trade guilds. Refusing to participate in the worship of the guild's gods meant that they weren't allowed to earn a living in their customary trades. Some of them were cast out of their families. They were disinherited. Perhaps this is what Peter had in mind when he tells them essentially, your hope is in a better inheritance. Peter is telling them that what they have in Christ is better, better than what they have lost or what they could lose. Why? Well, their earthly inheritance is subject to decay. Their heavenly inheritance is imperishable. Their earthly possessions are stained by sin. Their heavenly one is undefiled. Their earthly inheritance will not last, but their eternal one is unfading. Believer, the point is simple. What you have in Christ is pure and permanent. What you have in Christ will last. What, will ha- what you have in this world is stained by sin and will not. You have a place in the kingdom of God. Some of the perks of the kingdom you get to know it, you get to enjoy now. But these things will only be refined, perfected, and enjoyed perfectly in the age to come. What you have here among this body of believers, it's only a taste of the joy, fellowship, and sweet communion to come. Brothers and sisters, wasn't it a delight last week to fellowship together around God's Word and then share a meal together, to linger over those dirty plates and talk to one another? It was, wasn't it? That is the kind of communion and fellowship we will enjoy forever. It will only get better. Take joy in the fact that you have an eternal, pure inheritance in the kingdom of God. Fifthly, we rejoice in security. Once again, consider Peter's original audience. Their earthly inheritance was subject to the whims of their masters, their families, or their trade guilds. Like them, our earthly inheritance is subject to the whims of our bosses, the uncertainties of the stock market, or the real estate market. And Peter points out in his second epistle, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Our earthly possessions, should they last until the Lord comes, are reserved for fire, but our heavenly inheritance is secure, reserved in heaven for us in that place of permanent. Oh, I know we think backwards. We think that what we see and feel and hear is solid and permanent and lasting. But isn't it really the other way around? Indeed, our earthly possessions can be taken away or are destroyed or are subject to decay. Our heavenly inheritance will be ours and more throughout eternity. It will never fade, and it is stored up for us now kept in that place of permanence. And I would notice that it's not just our inheritances that are secure. We too are secure. Notice that uh, what he says is that, that we are guarded by the power of God. Wayne Grudem points out that the word guarded here can be used in the sense of being kept safe or in the sense of kept from escaping. So the word can be interpreted in this way. God is preserving believers from escaping from his kingdom, and he is protecting them from external attacks. I know that some among us feel weak in the faith or are concerned about our failures in the faith. But I would remind you who penned this letter. Our author was 
the one of whom Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Remember that our author is the one who denied the Lord three times and was restored threefold by the words, feed my sheep. Brothers and sisters, the one who could keep Simon Peter can keep you. Believe in him, not yourself. Rejoice in your security. So let's review for a moment. In what do we rejoice? Well, we rejoice in the fact that we have been born again by the mercy of God. We rejoice in the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the permanent, pure inheritance secured for us in heaven. We rejoice in the fact that we are guarded through faith by God's power. So our sixth reason, in short, Peter boils all that down into one word. We rejoice in our salvation. Peter takes all that he has declared in verses 3 through 5, mercy, the new birth, our inheritance, our security, all that we have in Christ, and he gives it a name. He puts that all together and calls it our salvation. So let's think about that word for a minute. It means that we have been saved from something. The word salvation is sometimes translated in the ESV as deliverance. Think about what that means. It means there is an end date to all of this. There is an end date to all of our trials. We will be delivered from our sins, the hostile world, our physical distresses, the imperfections of our fellowship with one another. And it is true that we have our salvation now, but Peter tells us that our full salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is not the way that it's always going to be. You are saved. You will be saved. Weigh that against whatever trials you have in this life and rejoice. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8.18 But there are, I have two more things to say about this, two more reasons for, for, for joy. And the seventh reason is this. We do not just rejoice in our salvation, but we also rejoice in the one who saves us. Note what Peter says about Jesus. Look at verse 8. He says of Christ, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Dear believer, as you face various necessary trials, consider your chief source of joy the fact that you have Christ. It is not just the fact that he has secured these things for you, life, hope, security. He has indeed secured these things for you and your salvation, but he gives you more. He gives you what is best, perfect, eternal, pure, kind, gentle, and compassionate. He gives you himself. All others may fail you, but he will never fail. He is the one who will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a flickering candle. He is your high priest, your king, your brother, and your friend. You have him, and you have him for all eternity. Rejoice in his love for you and in your love for him. And believer, he says to you, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice 
and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Revelation 3.20. Rejoice in the one who saves you. There is one more short source of joy, and it's related to this one that I'd like to share with you this morning. And the eighth thing that we can rejoice in is we can rejoice in what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ. Or we can put it another way, we can rejoice in our position in history and what the Lord is doing in it. Let me explain. Look again at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, Christ, you love him. He continues. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So think about this for a moment. Sinclair Ferguson made this observation in the sermon I heard years ago. He observed that Peter appears to have thought like this. Of course, I believe in Jesus. I walked with him. He became my master and my friend. I saw him die. I saw his resurrected body. I saw the nail prints in his hand. I experienced his present love, his forgiveness, and restored fellowship with him. I received an apostleship from him. I saw him rise into heaven. I heard the angels speak. At his command, I received the Holy Spirit and power. Of course I believe in Jesus. Yet these didn't see. Yet they love Jesus and believe in him. What a testimony to God's grace and power. What a delight and joy. But, he, but there's more. Glancing down the passage, we can see that Peter reminds his readers where they stand in history. He reminds them, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Peter goes on to remind us that the prophets prophesied about both Christ's sufferings and his subsequent glories, and they wondered who would come, when this would happen, and how God would accomplish of what they spoke and wrote. But we don't have to wonder, do we? No, we have experienced the grace. We know who and how and when. We are the recipients of the grace prophesied in the Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, it is the Spirit of Christ that is at work in and through us. What God began to do 2,000 years ago with a handful of believers, or was it about 100 or so? What God began to do uh, 2,000 years ago when the church began in Jerusalem was sp- has spread throughout the entire world. We have brothers and sisters throughout the globe. We have brothers and sisters in China, Pakistan, Africa, indeed in every continent. And what's more, we have brothers and sisters throughout the ages. Ages past, and should God delay the Lord's coming, we will have brothers and sisters still in the future. Our Jesus has been and is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is glorious, so glorious that angels, we are told, long to look into it. This salvation that God has provided through Christ by his Holy Spirit. We have a tendency, don't we, to focus on what's wrong in the world. We have a tendency to focus on our trials and our troubles. I even have a tendency to focus on potential troubles. But part of the reason that we have troubles is because God is at work. Lift up your heads and see what God is doing. By his grace, believers in Asia Minor in the first century believed in one whom they had not seen. 
And the same thing is happening today in the Tri-Cities in the 21st century and throughout the world. What was prophesied is ours. We have a part in what God has been, has been and is doing and a place in his kingdom. And we have a role to play in the building of his church. What joy. So what can we say to these things? Well, we can do what Peter does. We can bless our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can praise his holy name. But we can also say this, O believer, beset with trials of various kinds, lift up your head. See that there is indeed a kind of joy even in the trials that are necessary. But look beyond them as well. Remember the mercy and life that you have been given. Remember the hope that you have that the world cannot have apart from Christ. Remember the inheritance that you enjoy in part now, but will enjoy fully in the future. Remember that your inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. Remember who has secured your salvation and secured you. Remember that you have a place and part in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will never fail in time or in purity. Remember these things and rejoice. And finally, let your joy motivate you. Isn't isn't that what Peter has in mind in verse 14 of chapter 1? He says, Therefore, referring to all that he has just blessed God for and in which they rejoice, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The believer's joy is to be the foundation of his obedience. Believer, let your joy become praise and the basis of your perseverance in the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us good and great gifts. You have given us life. You have given us light. You have given us hope. You have given us an inheritance that will never fail and that will always last for eternity. You've given us fellowship with one another that will only be improved in the world to come. And Father, above all these things, you have given us your Son, and you've given us your promise that you would be our God and that we would be your people. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember these things always, that these would be the basis for our joy and for are bearing up under the trials that that you bring into our lives. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you've given us spiritual life and hope. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.